Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building in Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. Today we're going to be doing a special show in honor of Apollo 11's 50th anniversary. When Apollo 11 reached the moon on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first people to walk its surface. Michael Collins, a third crew member, remained in orbit around the moon. The event is known as one of the most watched events in TV broadcast history, and it's one of those events where people remember where they were at the time that Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon. So we'll be talking about that and uh, taking your questions and comments today. And we have four great guests with us today to talk about this historic moment. Uh, OBG um, Basu is a professor emeritus in Earth and atmospheric sciences, atmospheric sciences at Indiana University. He's been a principal investigator to study lunar samples for NASA. Ray Boomhauer is senior editor for the Indiana Historical Society Press and the author of Gus Grissom, The Lost Astronaut. Constantine Delianis is an associate professor in Indiana University's Department of Astronomy. And we're also pleased to be joined by phone by Brian Odom, a historian for NASA. If you have questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We, uh, when we were getting ready for the show, we asked our listeners if they had uh, remember the moment and had anything that they wanted to share for uh, the program today. And we're going to play a clip now that was sent to us by Mary Belding. She was uh, on vacation in Florida with her parents. She says they planned their, their uh, family vacation around the launch. Yes, um, we were some distance away, of course. Um, there were thousands of people around us where we were uh, standing. And when the rockets took off, you know, we could see the flames and the smoke and everything. And after it got up just a little bit, it just seemed to hang there. It, it looked like it wasn't moving. It, it really just looked as though it were suspended on a string and hanging there. And just in one voice, the crowd started chanting, go, go, go. And then it, as if it kind of got a new oomph or something like that, it just started going up and we watched it until it was out of sight. I'm sure that all of you have heard uh, stories and people talk about the, the, the launch and the mission. And I, I just want to ask you to get your, your feedback on the importance and, you know, what the, what the mission has meant to, to your lives. And let's start with Constantine Dalianis. Well, I was a child at the time, and I'll never forget how much it inspired me and how awed I was at these accomplishments just simply amazing. Uh, if we humans could choose to go to the moon, to quote President Kennedy, and then actually succeed at doing so, then it seemed to me as a child that we could do just about anything. Uh, the space program probably helped inspire me to pursue a career in uh, astrophysics, and I know it inspired a great many people to pursue STEM disciplines. And uh, the fact that they've done so has probably uh, improved the quality of uh, our lives uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, as President, President Kennedy predicted, the space program created new technologies to achieve these goals and uh, probably uh, hastened the developments uh, of, of others, uh, again, to, to all of our benefit. Mm-hmm. Dr. Basu? Um, well, in contrast, I was an adult 
1969. <laughs> I was actually in India trying to find coal for the Geological Survey of India, living in a tent. That was 1969, July for me. <laughs> so I didn't know anything about the details of it until I came back to headquarters to Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I joined uh, the program with sample research uh, around 1972, 72 for all as a graduate student at Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And you said you haven't been off the moon since, right? Uh, keeping my two feet on two different worlds, <laughs> the moon world and the earth world. Right. All right. Ray? Well, I was a true child of the space age. I remember our teacher, you know, rolling in the uh, portable television, which was advanced technology for the times, and our whole class watching, you know, the launches from uh, Cape Kennedy. And I remember being inspired by uh, the Apollo missions to build a Saturn V model, the rocket that took the astronauts to the moon for our school science fair and was bitterly disappointed to only get an honorable mention, a ribbon for it. And, of course, later I learned that everyone who entered actually got an honorable mention ribbon, so it wasn't much of an honor anyway. And I remember staying up late for me at the time, uh, and that's really an indelible memory from my childhood. I don't have a lot of memories from that, but I do remember staying up, sitting on the couch in Mishawaka, Indiana, uh, my home on West Patel Street, and watching Armstrong make that first important step on the moon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it inspired my father to take my brothers and I on into a trip to a couple years later to the Grissom Memorial, Gus Grissom Memorial at Spring Mill State Park. And being able to actually touch the Gemini 3 spacecraft that Grissom took in orbit uh, with uh, John Young for the Gemini 3 mission, the unsinkable Molly Brown which truly was unsinkable, and like his Liberty Bell 7 spacecraft, I think inspired me, you know, years, much, many years later to go ahead and, and write his uh, biography, which led me to uh, do, you know, a lot of work in those early missions for the Mercury, the Gemini missions, kind of the middle child of the American space program, and then the Apollo space missions as well. I want to ask uh, Brian Odom to answer the question and also just say that, just tell our listeners that Brian has been uh, pretty much in demand. He's been talking to people all over the world in the last week, so we're, we're pleased to have him here. So for you personally, Brian, and then also, you know, for what this mean, has meant to the world. Yeah, I th- you know, I was unfortunately, I guess I was, uh, I was yet to be born at the time. So I've been scrambling ever since to put together the pieces to, to, <laughs> to figure out what exactly happened. But, uh, but I think you mentioned it. You know, the world. Uh, you know, it, it's an American thing, right? It's a Cold War context. So it's, you know, this: are we going to beat the Soviets? We've been getting getting our tails kicked by the Soviets for, you know, for what would appear to be a whole decade. Uh, you know, and then finally we're able to do that. But, you know, and so it's a, it's an American accomplishment. But, you know, the world was watching, right, because that's what, you know, Michael Collins is, uh, you know, Michael Collins always says, you know, that when he went around the world and he talked to people, it was it was the we did it, right, and it was, you know, going back to the first comment, you know, that, uh, you know, this was something that the technology that was created for this and the, you know, just everything that grew out of this, this whole program has, you know, changed the world in such a profound way that, you know, it's kind of a paradigm shift, and, you know, the the Manhattan Project really contributes to that early on, but uh, Apollo kind of continues that legacy to where we our, our relationship to technology actually changes because of a program like this, where we live with things today that that in a in a previous world they they couldn't have imagined having a relationship like that. So I think it's you know it it is transformative. Uh, you know, you think about the decade of the 1960s that you know all the turmoil that was going on the political divisions civil rights movement urban riots women's rights movements the environmental movement the vietnam war and all of that happening in this context but in 1969 the entire world can come together you know to the point where you know ho chi minh can write a letter to lyndon johnson saying you know how big of accomplishment this is in the midst of a of a war like that so i think you know it it really is it does speak to what we can accomplish when we when we are united behind a common goal Okay. May I add to that uh, what you said, Brian? Um, I was uh, in Greece at the time of the moonwalk, and so I personally witnessed what people in another country felt. Uh, 
we, uh, I believe, were able to watch the broadcast live. At least I have memories of it. I hope they're correct, true memories. Uh, in Athens, uh, broadcasting TV had existed only for a few years uh, and uh, for limited uh, time, maybe from 6 p.m. to midnight or something like that. But the moonwalk took place early in the morning for us, and, and they made an exception and broadcast it live. I remember we were in a little country home my grandparents had on Mount Pendeli, which furnished the marbles that created the Parthenon, only we weren't facing toward Athens. We were facing in the opposite direction toward Marathon, though we couldn't see Marathon, other mountains in between. Anyway, uh, that was uh, extremely inspirational. And uh, as far as the importance to humanity, uh, as far as I can tell, for a singular moment in the existence of Homo sapiens, uh, Apollo 11 unified all of humanity. I've read that in the U.S., 94% of households watched the moonwalk. And worldwide, it's estimated between 600 uh, million and uh, maybe a billion people uh, watched it. And this is at a time when the whole population of the world was only 3.5 billion. And according to something else I've read, only 18% of households had television. So it seems that if anybody all around the world had a chance to go watch this, they, they went and uh, and, and did so. Uh, and uh, as you pointed out, people all over the world celebrated. They didn't say, you did it. You Americans did it. And like I said, I witnessed this. It was, we did it. We, the human species, did it. And that's so uh, extraordinary. And uh, uh, I, I often wonder, you know, what will people think 500 years from now, 5,000 years from now, looking back? Will they focus on our differences, on our squabbles? Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, I'm, I'm an astronomer, so I'll get this in. The universe is a really big place, and it's waiting to be explored. And I would like to think that people of the future will identify our time as that time when human evolution transcended everything that had preceded, and we took our first steps as a spacefaring species. Now, let's jump forward a little bit. I wasn't planning on going here uh, this early in the program, but let's talk about what's happening now because there's there's plans to, to go to the moon again. And I guess I, I want to ask Brian to talk about, you know, the plans ahead for NASA. I know you're a historian, but yeah. you can you can look ahead to what's what's planned and the significant, you know, how this is going to be different from the last time we went to the moon and, and how – you know, how this is what, – what the purpose of, of the next moon, manned or, or peopled um, flight to the moon will be. Exactly. Yeah. You know, without a doubt, the last uh, – you know, the Apollo missions all took place in this Cold War context where it was one nation pitted against another nation for, you know, international prestige and, uh, you know, that, that was meaningful for, for lots of different reasons. But, you know, that model basically proved itself to be a dead-end model. I mean, we hate to say it about the Apollo program, but when it comes to an end in 1972, we haven't gone back beyond low-Earth orbit since then. Now, in low-Earth orbit, we've done a lot of incredible things. The, you know, the space shuttle program. Uh, everything we've done, and particularly the International Space Station, you know, these partnerships across the world where, you know, people come together to create this great science. And I think right now we have at NASA, we, the plan is the Artemis program. Uh, Artemis is going back to the moon, uh, the first woman and the next man by 2024. And that's the plan right now. So why do we go back to the moon? We haven't we already done this, right? Well, the idea is that we go there and we learn to live sustainably. We learn, you know, we can learn a lot about the moon, and there's somebody else on the panel I know <laughs> that can talk more about the moon than that and, and why it's important to go back and what you can learn and what you can gain from that. But the idea is to go and learn to live sustainably because the next big step is to go on to Mars. So, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of human history, we have done very little in space exploration. I mean, this is all unfolded over a very short period of time. Fifty years is nothing, really, in the, in the big picture. Uh, where will we be in 50 years if we continue to build and we continue to learn these hard lessons, you know? But it can't just be one government against another. It has to be, you know, industrial partnerships, private partnerships, people like the SpaceX's and the, uh, you know, the Blue Origins of the world, but also international agreements. And a lot of the international community has already signed off for this. We, we can't be in a competition 
for, with any more for this. It has to be cooperation. All right. I want to give our phone numbers again in case you want to join us on the program today, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. And uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at Noon Edition or news at indianapublicmedia.org. So what about that, uh, Professor Obiji Basu, the surface of the moon? Is it a sustainable place? Uh, the importance of going back to the moon and getting samples is in sampling plan. Consider if a Martian, if there were some, were to come to the Earth and sample only the continents, and if the ocean were to be dry, they would never know what what is there under the 75%, 70% of the Earth's surface. There is a big debate going on right now about if our moon sampling is biased we do not have a history of the moon or dating of the moon between about 4.4 and 3.9, very little. Is it a sample bias or is it because there was a cataclysmic bombardment at that time triggered by some kind of an astrophysical event? Mm -hmm. So sampling, additional, not additional, but different samples is, should be the main goal. Okay. And what are, what are the things that you think we can learn from, from different samples? I mean, I, I know that's a very, very broad question, but what are the kinds of things that you study and that you... We, we would know more about the gaps in the history of the moon. We study samples and date them, find their ages. So if somebody were to come to the Earth and sample only the continents... They would get one set of samples and might miss all the old samples or get only the old samples, not the new samples, which is doubtful. But if they came and sampled only the bottom of the earth, the bottom of the oceans, they would not get any sample, really, to speak of uh, that are more than, let's say, 300 million years yeah. old in the history of four and a half billion years of Earth history. Mm -hmm. okay. That's the context. Okay. And we would know more about the origin of the moon, more about the evolution of the moon, extrapolating, therefore, to the origin of other planetary bodies and rocky planetary bodies and their evolution. Okay. We have a phone call from Owen who's, uh, I think he's going to have a question for Ray here. So, Owen, go ahead. Hello, Owen, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, since Ray has written an excellent um, biography of Gus Grissom, I'd like to um, ask him if he has any idea whether, if he had survived, um, Grissom would have gone on one of the moon trips. Good to, good to hear from you, Owen. Uh, thanks for that question. We were talking about it before the show, and uh, if you can trust Deke Slayton, who was one of the original seven Mercury astronauts, who was granted because of a heart condition and then later became in charge of the astronaut office at NASA and was responsible for selecting the crew members for each of the uh, missions. Uh, the idea was that if all possible for the uh, Apollo moon landing mission, uh, NASA and he were going to try to have one of the original seven astronauts have that honor. And Gus was one of the few of the original seven still involved in the program, and although he had his problems with the Liberty Bell 7 uh, mishap with the hatch, uh, he was still uh, very well respected by NASA officials. He was selected to try out uh, the new generation of the Gemini spacecraft with the Gemini 3 mission. He was, of course, selected for the uh, command of the first Apollo mission, and so Deke Slayton says in his memoirs that if, you know, things had worked out uh, differently, Gus Gerson might have had that honor instead of Neil Armstrong. You still would have had a Purdue astronaut be the first one on the moon, but it might have been a different Purdue astronaut. Brian, what about uh, – can you add to this conversation? No, I think you're exactly right. I think Gus was uh, somebody that was in such a leadership role among the astronauts at that point that there's no doubt – you know he would have he would have been on because he was you know he was seen the way he was viewed by the astronaut the rest of the astronauts as a as a leader someone to look up to and someone who knew the systems in and out i mean and he was always worried about 
you know, being as making the systems as reliable as possible. So, you know, he was a he was definitely a, a key piece of that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the backgrounds of these astronauts? Uh, you know, who were in the the Apollo program, Brian? Yeah. Well, you know, it kind of varied over the years, right? I mean, because the first Mercury Seven astronauts, as you mentioned, you know, were mostly uh, you know test pilots because that was you know. That was seen as you know kind of a key characteristic, uh, but they definitely had uh, you know uh, very intelligent high level of intelligence across the board because they were going to have to they you know there was an idea they were going to have to learn all these new systems and be able to you know to move from there and understand what it was they were really doing and but over the time over the years you know with the different uh, rounds of selections uh, by the time you get to the last group and obviously the you know the last uh, one of the last astronauts on the moon uh, you know Harrison Schmidt. You know, you begin to see more of a science background than uh, throughout. You know, you think about Buzz Aldrin, in fact, and Buzz had a, uh, you know, a degree, a Ph.D. in orbital mechanics from MIT. So you begin to see a little more varied, you know, a- as the decades kind of progressed. But, uh, but, yeah, their backgrounds were in the beginning a little more uniform, but over time they, they began to s- some diversity began to creep in. All right. We're going to talk more about uh, the moon landing of 50 years ago this week uh, when we return, but we're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg uh, from WFIU, and we are talking today about Apollo 11 with OBG Batsu, Professor Emeritus of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at IU, Ray Boomauer, Senior Editor for the Indiana Historical Society Press and the author of Gus Grissom, The Lost Astronaut, Constantine Delianis, Associate Professor in the IU Department of Astronomy, and Brian Odom, the historian for NASA. Uh, We also talked uh, before the program today uh, with Greg McCauley, who's Executive Director of the Link Observatory, and he also uh, worked on Apollo 15, 16, and 17, had a NASA top-secret clearance. He gave us some comments, an anecdote that we wanted to play for you today. And prior to the flight, the Apollo 11 astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, had commissioned a, a, an artist to create a postcard four-by-six postcard. In the lower left-hand corner of that postcard, this artist drew the the image of the astronauts on the surface of the moon. It was a hand drawing. And those postcards, 300 of those postcards were printed, 300. All three astronauts signed in blue magic marker, like a fine-tip magic marker, their, their autographs. And so each of the 300 postcards had the autograph of all three Apollo 11 astronauts. On July the 20th, a friend of the family had all 300 of those postcards stamped in Houston at the post office. 100 of those postcards then went to each of the three wives of the Apollo 11 crew. Those those 100 postcards that are held by each wife could then be sold if the astronauts were to perish on the Apollo 11 mission. They would then have monetary value. The families could then sell these autographed postcards to help support the family financially. The reason they did that is that in 1969, the life insurance policy that was offered to all NASA employees did not cover the astronauts while in flight. 
That was Greg McCauley from uh, the Link Observatory. So, um, Mr. Odom, Brian Odom, I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, not specifically about that, but this really puts a human face on the astronauts and the people who were involved in, in the space program back then. I mean, this is such an enormous um, enormous piece of history, but these were humans. These were people that, that had, you know, families and had things going on. And, and I guess I just want to throw that out there and have you talk about, you yeah. know, the people involved a little bit. Sure. I mean, you know, starting with the astronauts, I mean, some of the, you know, these documentaries that have come out lately, Chasing the Moon, which is just phenomenal because it really does focus in on, on, on things like that. We see the the astronauts' families, you know, sitting at home watching these things on TV like the rest of the world and to see the level of anxiety that they that they go through. And, the, you know, you, you can never put yourself in that position. And to think about, you know, the, uh, you know, President Nixon, who's, you know, Richard Nixon, who's president at the time, you know, he has a letter written if, you know, the ascent engine on the lunar module doesn't fire. So it's a one-shot deal. If it doesn't fire, you have two uh, two human beings sitting on the moon who are going to die and they're you know, so he has a letter written about, you know, just how this great sacrifice and everything that's going on, even to the to the workforce itself. I mean, you're talking about 400,000 people across the country over a decade uh, working on this program, these long hours they work and the, the, you know, the commitment they have to it. And, you know, it, it takes a toll on their health. It takes, you know, the heart, of, you know, just the, you know, just the, the health of these people suffer, the death rate of, you know, people just working themselves to death. And, you know, the divorce rates are so high among these. So it's, you know, that side of Apollo is truly impactful and should never be forgotten. You know, when we say these things are incredibly important accomplishments, the human side of this is just, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's really, it's heartbreaking at times, but it, but it also leads to the, just the critical impact that this has. Well, and the, and the courage that had to be involved with the people who would put themselves through this. Exactly, because you know you, you mentioned you know, obviously Gus Grissom, you know Gus, who's someone who perishes in the uh, the fire of Apollo One, and you know it's 1967. It's you know they ask Grissom, and you people have probably seen this footage where you know he says, "Do you guys know the risks that you're taking?" And they're like, "Yeah." He just says, "You know that, but that's if something ha- even if something happens, let's go forward. Uh, you know we understand and we're willing to accept this risk. And if something happens, don't stop." It's it's important to humanity, and and we know that. I want to turn to our uh, our professors from Indiana University and just ask about the, you know, the importance in terms of of going to the moon when it comes to, you know, research in the last fifty years of of things that have been discovered and things that we've learned and and what it's meant to each of your departments at the university. Well, I'm sure it generated a lot of interest. As I mentioned earlier, many, many people probably went into science, engineering, technology, and mathematics or STEM disciplines uh, because of the Apollo program, or at least they were inspired by it. But we also learned a lot and continue to learn a a tremendous amount about other planets and the solar system through various NASA missions. With regards to the moon, and actually Professor Basu is better... uh, suited to to discuss this, but I can tell you from my experience when I teach uh, the the huge introductory courses that uh, fit 230 people in the auditorium, there always seems to be a little bit of a murmur when I'm lecturing, but when I say, and now we'll discuss the origin of the moon, all of a sudden it's absolutely dead quiet. You can hear a pin drop. Students want to know what we think about the origin of the moon. And uh, the Apollo missions changed a lot of things about uh, how we perceive the moon. For example, the craters uh, for a long time, uh, of which there are many on the moon, were thought to be volcanic. And uh, I believe it's true that through the Apollo missions we learned that instead they're impact craters. So stuff, lots of stuff hit the moon over and over. The uh, moon rocks the astronauts brought back – were analyzed in quite detail, and it was through their composition that we came to the at least current theory about the uh, the moon's origin. Uh, and we also learned things about the early history of the solar system. There was a lot of bombardment and so on. And uh, so these are three big things that uh, kind of changed our view about uh, mm-hmm. not just the origin of the moon, but uh, perhaps the Earth as well. Mm-hmm. Professor? Um, there were two things... Uh, that changed with Apollo 11 samples coming on Earth. 
the first one was the touchdown, really, because Tommy Gold from Cornell always maintained that what we see at the surface of the moon in the lower seas, as they call them, the dark part, was actually a fluff of dust. And anyone going there or or a spacecraft landing there would actually drown. So there were some people who thought <clears throat> that the first words from Neil Armstrong could be something like, we have drowned, we can't see the outside. <laughs> Give us help. <laughs> that, that changed completely. Uh -huh. uh, some of you may know, that is the listeners, um, may know of, uh, of an Indiana boy who was a great Nobel laureate. There are many, but he was one of the greater ones, Harold Urey, who thought that the moon were, consisted of the most primitive material of the solar system and had never changed. So he famously said, give me a piece of the moon and I'll tell you about the history of the solar system. That changed completely. <laughs> That idea actually was born of the one school of thought at that time who thought that the moon had accreted, got together, formed in a cold way. There were cold stuff that got just stuck together. The other school that was uh, said it would be different, but it was John Wood from Harvard who within 100 days essentially said the moon had probably a 1,000-kilometer-deep molten rock ocean mm -hmm. called magma ocean. And that, was, that was a changing point in thinking about the moon's origin and about currently some people are projecting that, extrapolating that to the origin of the Earth as well. That is, the Earth was formed hot and the outer part was a liquid. Mm -hmm. I want to ask Ray, Ray Boomauer also about the importance to Purdue University and what's happened. You know, you talked about, I mean, you know about Indiana history, and, and Purdue is a place where lots of astronauts have been trained. They have because of the engineering program. Of course, their aerospace program uh, as well is a great breeding ground for future uh, American astronauts. And uh, I can only say that I was uh, disappointed because of my poor math and science skills early on, that, uh, and also my fear of heights, that I really couldn't be an astronaut. I couldn't go to Purdue and study there. I had to come to IU and, and major in journalism instead, but that did lead me into a, a career in, in history and writing about, uh, you know, one at least, one of the astronauts from Purdue, Gus Grissom. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that uh, one of the things that uh, came to me when I was writing uh, my book about Grissom was just the audacity of deciding to go to the moon when we did and just how uh, impossible it seemed at that time because, at, you know, when Kennedy made his uh, uh, speech before a joint session of Congress in uh, May 1961, uh, we had just one very brief mission in the space. You know, Al Shepard went up on May 5th in the Freedom 7, and it was a suborbital flight, just 15 minutes in space. And here's uh, Kennedy setting this goal before the decade was out of traveling more than 200,000 miles from the Earth to the moon and, and back again and returning to man safely. And uh, it just seemed like I'm sure NASA, as Brian could probably speak to this, kind of threw up its hands and said, how are we going to do this? It seemed impossible at the time. And uh, just the uh, great leaps in technology, the Redstone rocket that took uh, – Al Shepard into space had one single engine with 78,000 pounds of thrust, and then the Saturn V rocket that took the astronauts to the moon had five rockets producing, you know, three million pounds of thrust, and just the leaps in technology that was needed to get men to the moon and back. So, um, yeah, Brian, do, can you – is there history about what the folks at NASA thought when Kennedy said this? <laughs> 
I think there's a, I think it depended on who you asked, right? Because there were a lot of people who said, you know, we yeah, obviously we had these plans in order because that was the long-term goal. But now you've pushed that to nine years from now when maybe we were thinking that was our, you know, long-term in the 50-year plan, right? <laughs> we're going to go to the moon. But, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, like just like you mentioned, that redstone scaling that, you know, you just don't scale those things up. You just don't make a bigger redstone. You Everything has to be invented. You're talking about you know, new installations, new engines, new hardware, new guidance computer, everything from, from beginning to end has to has to be invented as you go. And you don't even really know what the major challenges are going to be until you begin to move forward. And that was you know, that was kinda of characteristic of the Saturn Five program is that, you know, you develop those big F one engines that are, you know, one point five million pounds of thrust per engine and you got five of them that have to work together in unison and uh, you know, and then they they have things like combustion instability, which basically means they have a tendency to explode, uh, you know, when you don't want them to. So, uh, you know, solving that problem, you know, to, with the tools that they had, you know, it's not like they had the tools that we have today to, you know, the analyticals, uh, you know, we can, we can model a whole lot more today than they could back then. But, you know, they, they just, you know, but step by step, incremental progress, you know, just a, a firm commitment by all these people to solve this. And it's, yeah, every step was a challenge. If you want to join us today, we still have about 20 minutes to go in the program. Not quite that much, but you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can uh, send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We are talking about uh, space flight, the moon, 50 years since Apollo 11. I guess I want to ask uh, for you know any any feedback from, from or feedback from any of you. You know, I, I think as um, our professor uh, Basu said, you know, he talked about billions of years. I mean, 50 years is not really a long time. But I think that a lot of people believe that once we went to the moon, we'd probably keep going to the moon, and that. Maybe, you know, individuals like, well, anybody would be able to pay enough money and get on a rocket and fly to the moon. What happened? I mean, why, why has there been – why were there a few flights to the moon, manned flights to the moon, and then none since then? Well, I think you have to realize uh, the history of those times and uh, just what a shock Sputnik was when uh, the Soviet Union announced it and launched the first artificial satellite into orbit. And, and how that uh, really um, made a dent, I think, in the American psyche. And there was a big push, of course, for STEM education. That we were falling behind. And how dare this uh, communist country who could barely make a tractor that work beat us into space. Here we are, the most technologically advanced uh, country on Earth, supposedly. And there was a national will at that time to spend the billions of dollars needed to do something, to do anything to beat the Russians in the space. I don't think there's that urgency, national urgency, as there was in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably Brian's the best person to address this question, but certainly as a child at the time, I uh, fully expected that we would continue, and uh, there was even talk that, well, if we could do this, go to the moon in 10 years, give us another 10, 20 years, we'll be on Mars. And, well, we, we've uh, fallen behind that schedule. <laughs> um, but I, I think maybe, um, you know, if, if the goal was really mostly political, we had to catch up to the Russians and get ahead of them, I think people probably felt we had accomplished that and we had spent a great deal of money doing so. And now that we're, we're in a leadership position, Maybe we don't need to be doing these things anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing. But, again, perhaps uh, Brian has some more insights on that. Yeah, I think it's definitely a, it's a piece of all of that, right? You did it. You accomplished the goal. The goal was to, you know, you put all the energy into that. And it actually it, it goes back into, you know, again, we don't want to talk you know, in, a, in an anniversary season. We don't want to talk about the problems behind Apollo. But because you make that the goal, you, you, you miss a lot of the incremental steps and the way the plan had been intended to go because it was supposed to be more of a slow, you know, we're going to explore low Earth orbit. We're going to build a space station. We're going to have a shuttle. And then we're going to go to the moon, and then we're going to go on to Mars and beyond. And because Kennedy's decision to make the moon the initial focus by the end of the decade, it, it basically it 
threw that infrastructure kind of into chaos and it decided that the Saturn V would be the the program in the beginning. And so, you know, Van Brown and uh, Werner Van Brown, who was the center director here at Marshall Space Flight Center at the time, uh, who'd worked on the V2 and he was, you know, the organizer of the Saturn V and all of the, the moral issues that come with that. You know, his plan when he goes after, you know, immediately basically after the Apollo 11 in 1970, you know, he goes to headquarters with his with his plan for space exploration, they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go back to the original drawing board, what we had intended, and and we're gonna go with that. And they they have that plan. They hand it to Nixon, and Nixon says, well, good luck with that. We're not gonna do that. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you this shuttle. I'll give you one piece of that infrastructure, and that's kind of where we returned. So we 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 took a step back, but. Uh, but yeah, there was you know the Vietnam War was still pressing, and all of the you know the the seven, 1970s economic downturn all around. So a lot of that kind of influenced uh, the the retreat from that. But yeah, you're right. In in the early period, most people had assumed that that would be we would we would be living on the moon. We would eventually live on Mars. When Brown predicted that we would be on the moon on Mars by 1983 in his plan. So. Yeah, we're definitely behind. Now, I had a, uh, have a friend who is still mad she didn't have her jet pack that they had on the Jetsons, you know. So, <laughs> right. you know, things, things don't work always work out that same way. We have a phone call, so let's go with uh, Louise who's on the phone. Louise? I have a, a human interest story that, that I think might be germane to the topic, the larger topic. But in 1969, I was a 22-year-old graduate student in anthropology, and I was – uh, working down at the bottom in a very remote part of the Grand Canyon, doing some diabetes research amongst the Havasupai Indians. And we knew that the landing was going to be happening uh, around July uh, 20th, so we had to get all of our centrifuges and uh, all these different kinds of equipment out in time so we could go uh, be up on the rim to try to catch the landing. And we got up there, and we ended up having to drive about 100 miles to Williams, Arizona, uh, going through every little town, stopping at every bar till we found a <laughs> bar with a TV, <laughs> and we finally did find one. And there was just this profound moment of we had just been a few short uh, hours earlier down at the most the most bottom part of the of the earth amongst some people who had never even seen non uh, non native uh, people, and now we were actually watching the landing uh, on a, a part of the universe that was the furthest away from, from, the, uh, from the Earth at that time, and it was a real profound moment for me as a 22-year-old. It sounds pretty <laughs> surreal, actually. <laughs> were there other people at that bar that were there? The, the, oh, yeah, the, there were lots of cowboys. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty wild scene. Yeah, I just thought I'd share that was sure. kind of a, a moment in time of a lot of paradoxes and juxtapositions. Yeah, <laughs> well, we appreciate the call. Thank Absolutely. You. Thanks for your conversation. Right. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Yeah. We're going to get another phone call here uh, in just a second. So we'll we'll wait on that phone call. So I, I think, you know, we want to talk a little bit about about what's, you know, what's next because we seem to be ramping up again. I mean, we talked a little bit about um, Artemis uh, before. So why now? I mean, why are we ramping up now to uh, – to go back and, and put people, you know, in space. Good, There's a, good question. Uh, I'll let someone else take that. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll go f- first with well, one, of, one, of, one of you here. In the- well, it's a little hard to know why now. Uh, I've seen a number of presidents uh, uh, say that we're going to move out again and explore space again, and uh, it's been kind of slow. I hope this time it's real. But in a in a broader sense, uh, as as a species, and and I have to say I'm not an anthropologist, but I am aware that uh, Homo sapiens started out in Africa, expanded, explored farther away. Uh, maybe in part it was because of survival. I'd like to believe some of it was because of curiosity, and eventually we uh, expanded to the entire world. And now we still want to explore and begin to explore the rest of the universe. And so it's maybe just a, a natural step in our evolution. We took the first steps 50 years ago, and sooner or later I'm convinced uh, we will go out there. It's just a question of, of when. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, perhaps now we'll yeah, resume. Yeah. <laughs> and let's not forget the uh, you know various interplanetary missions that uh, NASA has uh, right. had after the Apollo program, the Voyager, which is just as um, an auspicious I think uh, part of uh, Amer- uh, the world history as, as Apollo was, you know, exploring 
the, the various planets in our solar system and then going beyond the solar system. And uh, that's just an impressive achievement in its own right. Yeah. Professor Basu, did you want to mention well, something? Well, I have a slightly different take uh-huh. with respect to why now. Uh-huh. At that time, it was the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. Right now, it's China and India. Uh-huh. The space programs of those two countries are coming up. And if the United States doesn't take the correct steps or the appropriate steps right now, they would soon be eclipsed, particularly by China and probably also by India. Mm-hmm. That is not politically acceptable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and I think the other part of it really from NASA's perspective is that that's what we do, right? I mean, that's, as an agency, our, our mission, our, we're charged by the, by the, you know, the United States taxpayer to explore. Uh, and like you mentioned, it's not just human exploration. It's, you know, you think about what's happening on Mars right now with with mm-hmm. you have you have rovers on the moon on Mars talking to basically uh, you know uh, it, uh, spacecraft flying above their heads and sending that back to us here. I mean, it's, so it's it's an incredible amount of uh, work that we're doing there. The Chandra X-ray Observatory, you know, we're you know the work that's happened in X-ray astronomy over the past 25 years, you know, just the past, the past 20 years with Chandra is is incredible. Uh, Hubble Space Telescope and the great work it's done. So. You know, NASA sees its mission as both a science and an exploration, and, and those things are always hand-in-hand. Hand. And to, to as we've already talked about, the, the wealth of things that, are, that we can find out when we return to the moon, uh, you know, the moon has within it the, the potential to revolutionize how we produce energy back on Earth. I mean, with, you know, the different types of, you know, helium-3 that we could find there. Uh, we could develop new markets, but you also you think back to the technological shift that Apollo brought with it, just the, the how our daily lives were changed, and imagine how complex and how complicated it is to get to Mars. What types of technologies will we produce in that goal that will have, you know, ramifications back here on Earth? And I think that's that's all. So all of this is really part of what NASA's mission is, and and we really want to lead that, but we want to go hand-in-hand, just like with the International Space Station, as we go forward. I'm I'm sure Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would have loved to have the computing power of today's iPhone (laughs) as compared to what they had uh, when they landed the uh, LEM on the moon. I want to get back to the space station in a minute, but we've got a phone call, so let's go to Margaret on the phone. Hi. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. So, yeah, so I was 10 when uh, the moon landing happened, and it was exciting, and actually my son is a nuclear physicist now, but um, so, um, but my comment about, oh, shoot, I didn't hear that, is that uh, I, I think I'm thinking about the astronauts that saw the Earth, you know, and, and being, and like some of them realized that the mission was more, a better mission would be to protect the Earth. And so, like, the idea, like, of people going up in, in rockets just seems like, you know, like lots of people, that just seems horrible because we have climate change and we've got, it would just take, you know, so much energy to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my idea is that I think it's great, you know, sending the little robots to Mars and stuff, but I don't feel like people need to keep exploring the solar system. Mm-hmm. All right. Reactions? Um, well, yeah, right. I think, uh, you know, I can take that. I, I think that's, you know, looking at back at the Earth is one of the most important things, again, that NASA does. And going to the moon and finding out more about, you know, by learning there. But, you know, Apollo 8 definitely, I think, strikes me as, you know, that's the time when we look back at the Earth and really, you know, galvanize the environmental movement. But over the past 50 years, NASA has definitely directed a lot of its attention back on Earth. You know, a lot of the satellites that we have, I know just one in particular, the SEVERE program, looks, you know, it, it's, a, it's a space, you know, uh, a space pro, a series of space satellites that look back on Earth to tell us about disaster relief and, and where we need to focus energies. You know, even back to the Landsat days where you had, you know, looking at how to grow crops, you know, uh, or, or improve crop or crop yields by, you know, measuring the different things in the atmosphere and the different, uh, you know, the weather patterns and, you know, the weather, actually the weather satellites that we have that tell us about tornadoes and can send warnings. So, you know, all of these things are, that is that is also looking at the climate itself and looking at the earth is a, an incredibly important part of what NASA does today. 
All right. Thank you very much for the call, Margaret. So I wanted to just ask in the last minute or two, I, I think, and this may be, I may be way off base, but in my particular world, one of the probably mm, less acknowledged huge stories of NASA is the International Space Station and what's going on there. So I wondered if you, Brian, could talk about that a little bit. I mean, the the importance and, and what the space station has sort of meant to the overall space program. Yeah, you know, several different things. I mean, you could go a number of different ways on that, but just as a model for international collaboration in itself, I mean, think about how politically divided we are across, not only inside of our own country, but across the world, and the fact that scientists, engineering can come together and produce something like that in a collaborative environment. Uh, that's one thing, but you know, the, the research that's enabled by that, by that, you know, international capability to, you know, well, I mentioned cancer research before, uh, learning about different materials and the uh, it's it's just it's so impressive, and I anyone you know, and this information is available to anyone to look online and find out what exactly is going on there. Uh, but I think it's just it's to me it just speaks to our just like Apollo 11. It speaks to what when we unite ourselves together, what we're what's capable, what we're capable of. Mm-hmm. I want to ask uh, Constantine Delianis. So uh, the the your your memories. They sort of launched you into your career. So, you know, what, what do you – as you're approaching this 50-year anniversary, I mean, what are your thoughts just, just about, you know, how, how that was sort of a, um, a formative moment for you? Well, it was. I think I had already been interested in astronomy since as far back as I can remember, and the space program uh, simply amplified that interest and, uh, again, awed me uh, wow, we're actually going into space and, and, and maybe learning about some of these things uh, up close. So I'm certainly very glad that NASA kept up activities after the moon program uh, as much as they, they were able to, that they developed the, sh- the shuttle and, and that now they're looking forward to other things. And, and that have, they have sent a great number of robotic probes to uh, all parts of the solar system uh, and we've learned uh, an incredible amount uh, about the other planets. And sometimes it relates back to us as well. Uh, with regard to the last caller's point, um, it, it was learning about Venus that perhaps taught us about the dangers of rising temperatures on Earth. Venus is much, much hotter than it would have been if it hadn't suffered not just a greenhouse effect but also a runaway greenhouse effect. And if we had not seen that this actually happens, what would we be thinking about the dangers to Earth? Is it just a theoretical possibility that the Earth could suffer such a fate and uh, obviously be very detrimental to life? Uh, would we be as worried about it? Well, so here's something that another planet has taught us about the possible future of our own. Okay. We're, we're, we're out of time. We'll have to cut you off there. But <laughs> right. I, sure. I, I really appreciate all of, our, all of you. Our guests today have been fantastic. OBG uh, Basu uh, from IU, Ray Bumar, Brian Odom, a historian for NASA, and Constantine Delianis from IU. Um, for all our guests, thank you very much. Also for producers Kathy Knapp and Benta Boutier, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.